Long story short, all we kept were the bass and drums. Okay. John added synthesizer and guitar. He played an incredible John Lennon solo on it, which, by the way, after he played the solo, during the playback, we would turn to each other and play air guitar. Every time that solo came up, we'd play air guitar each other. You got to play air guitar with John Lennon? With John Lennon, yeah. That's pretty cool, dude. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hello, rock stars. It's your host, Lid Shaw. Welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars. I created this show to introduce you to real world recording professionals to hear their stories and learn from their experiences so that you can take your records to the next level and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Steve Marcantonio, a Grammy-winning producer, recording engineer, and teacher from Nashville, Tennessee. He is also a member of NARIS. He's a leadership music alumnus and winner of the ACM Engineer of the Year Award. Steve Marcantonio started his career at the Record Plant Studios in New York City in 1978. While at the Record Plant, he worked with such great artists as the Jay Giles Band, Aerosmith, Kiss, Hart, Graham Parker, the Blues Brothers, and John Lennon. One truly remarkable and heartbreaking story is that Steve spent eight days in the studio in December of 1980 with John and Yoko. After they left on the night of the eighth day, John was killed. Quite a shock for a 21-year-old who had just started in the business two years prior. Steve's credentials include Roseanne Cash, Rodney Crowell, Vince Gill, Reba, George Strait, Alabama, Restless Heart, and Deanna Carter. And in recent years, Steve has done records with Brantley Gilbert, Thomas Rhett, Band Perry, Taylor Swift, Hank Williams Jr., Steven Tyler, and Cheap Trick. And though he didn't include it in his bio, I know Steve is also dead serious about cooking real Italian food. So please welcome Steve Marcantonio to Recording Studio Rockstars. Steve, are you ready to rock? I'm absolutely. Thank you very much. That was a nice intro. I'm glad you enjoyed it, man. Cool. Good stuff. All right. So Steve, I've introduced you, but introduce yourself in your own words too. Tell us a little bit more about who you are and how you got to be doing all this. First of all, I come from a large Italian family, as you noted, that I love to cook, and I do love to cook. was born and raised in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and I was talking to you briefly before. That's kind of the settings of the Sopranos. Uh, We were all Italian back then. We all had a great time. It's like uh, we were all Italian back then. Yeah. (laughs) What are you now? (laughs) Is that what I said? (laughs) That's great. No, but in any case, I grew up in in a... Oops. I grew up in a household where my aunt and uncle lived upstairs from me, and they had two sons who were 20 years older than me. And my brothers were four and five years older than me. So I was born in 57, and the thing that I remember the most about music was in February of 63, we used to get the New York Daily News, a newspaper, and I remember reading on the front page that this band just landed in New York, and it were the Beatles. Nice. And those were the days when we had what was called a Victrola. It was before the stereo. It was just a console, and we played records, and we listened to the Beatles nonstop. We used to imitate them with our Beatle wigs, and there was always music in our house. 
both of my brothers, my brother John graduated high school in 69. So from 67 to 69, he had a band called the Twilighters and they used to play school dances because there were no DJs. They played live music and they used to play all the music, the up and coming hits. I remember Ray Lamio was a guitar player and I remember one day he came in saying, hey, did you check out this new band? They're called the Chicago Transit Authority. You know, that was Chicago one. And now there's what? 30 of them or something like that. Anyway, I grew up around music, listening to music all the time. And I knew I wanted to be involved in music because every time I bought an album, I would read the credits and it would say recorded at recorded by. And I was like, that's what I want to do. And in the, the summer of 73, I took a bogus course in recording in New York called the Recording Institute of America. Tony May was the instructor and he was a noteworthy engineer back in the day. He was a really cool, tall, thin black guy. And just the way he talked was really cool. And I didn't learn anything. I didn't sing. I didn't play an instrument. I just loved, you know what it was, Lidge? I, I grew up on the sound of music. Not necessarily, I wasn't really a song guy. Because when I listened, first of all, it was on AM radio. We're not talking so, about the hills of Switzerland here. <laughs> that sound of music? No, oh, yes. No, I liked the sound of the music coming through the through the radio. And I was always intrigued by that. So when I read those credits, that's what I, I was like, that's what I want to do. And long story short, my cousin Joey, who lived upstairs from me, got an audition to win the spot of the bass player, the, bass, the original bass player of the Four Seasons. Uh, he had quit sometime in the early 60s, and my cousin Joey got to be in the Four Seasons. So I learned a wow. lot from him, and he actually got me uh, in the door at the Record Plant Studios in 1978. I got to meet the owner, Roy Sakala, wow. who happened to be Italian. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it all plays into... Anyway, he looked at me and he liked me instantly. From May of 78 through September, I just hung out in the studio and then finally he hired me. And, you know, within the first week, I was in a session. I was sitting in a session and it just blew me away. And... You know, I worked there for several years. Uh, and What was the first stuff you did when you were sitting in a session? Well, funny you should say that. We were working with a band, and the drummer was Bobby Rondinelli, who was actually turned out to be a fairly famous rock drummer, heavy metal rock drummer. He and his brother, I forget his brother's name, they were doing this remake of Baby Love from the Supremes, and it was a really cool rock version so I'm in the room and I'm like, wow, this is cool. And I remember when they left, they all left and it was just me and Roy and Roy turned to me and there was another song they were working on. He goes, he goes, what do you think of this song? And I said, I don't really care for it, Roy. Well, when the band came back in, he was working on the song and he goes, oh, by the way, you know, Steve doesn't like this song. I was so embarrassed, but they took it in stride. And a week later, Lou Reed was working in the studio he was doing a live album recorded live at the bottom line. And Roy was kind of overseeing the record. I guess he was the executive producer. So I got to be in that. I was Roy's boy. I was known as. So wherever wow. Roy went, I followed him. So I'm in this session. I'm standing there. And that means a different thing if you're in New York than if you're in LA. You got to watch out, right? That could be. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Or if I was Father Roy's I got to quit making any, any LA cracks. Yeah. I, like, some people are going to be pissed at me. Yeah. Well, that's pretty amazing. So you got to be in the studio so quickly and be around everybody like that. Exactly. And some of the, the people that worked there kind of like were not happy about that. So I had, a, I had to make sure that I was cool with them. And I used to hang out when Roy left at five or six o'clock, I would hang out and I got to be friends with them. So, uh, you know, I made the good transition. You know? Well, you know, I just interviewed David Thoner 
Um, thanks for your introduction yes. too. And I, I know you My guys mentor. were there at the same time. So he yes. was, and he had been there maybe four years before you got there or something. He like, was right? there probably a, a good, maybe even five or six years before me. He worked on some incredible records. He worked on the mix of fame. I was just talking with the kids at Blackbird. He was assisted on that, uh, had great stories about that. Worked with John Lennon. And he worked with Jay Giles, and he took over. I, he probably talked about it. The first session he did with Jay Giles where Roy was engineering. Roy set up all the sounds, left, said, if you need me, I'm in my office. And you know, right. Roy, Dave right. got to do all of them. That's yeah. a great story. Yeah, yeah. And then and then he got up and left and he said, "Steve, take over. Right. If you need well, me, I'll be in my office." Well, Roy sort of did that with me too. Yeah, but no, no one famous. And looking back on it too, Roy would never allow us to do demos for free in the studio on multi-track because he thought that would be too much time and blah blah blah. So he would only allow us to do demos for free on a live two-track. Which probably taught you something too, right? <laughs> you kidding me? It's taught me how to record and how to mix in one session. So, so talk about that a little bit. Give us more insight. Well, I've, I remember getting a friend of mine, a couple of friends of mine played instruments, so I brought them in first. And I still have that. I should try to get you a piece of that. But they were all remakes of, of certain songs. And it was interesting because, you know, you listen. I listen now, and of course there was no bottom end and the reverb was too much. But, you know, it was a good start for me because I learned how to balance everything. And that's what mixing is all about. Just balancing. As a matter of fact, I teach at Blackbird. I teach mixing. And I say, I learned by getting up balances for my engineers. You know, we live in Pro Tools now where our balances never change. It's there all the time when we bring it up. But back then, you know, you brought your multi-track from one room to another. You had to get balances and you had to get cue mixes which are all part of mixing. So that's, that's even how when I, you're working on a record and you go back to overdub, you got to get the balance. Again you've got to get it. And you've got to get a decent balance where they can, where they're inspired to play and sing to. So, yeah. And a nice thing about that method too, is that each time you bring up the song, you get a little bit of a different mix and you start to get to know it. You're, you remember, you're like, Oh yeah, that's right. I'm going to do that. Slap exactly. Trick yes. Right here and yes. Set up yes. that funky thing. Mm -hmm. yep. You get quicker at it, but you would also remember to, go ahead and print a rough before you moved on to the next song. Or yes. Print it, hopefully, because you never knew. You and might we, nail it somewhere in the middle of making the record. That's right? right. Well, I think a lot of great records were made that way, you know, where they were just rough mixes. It's interesting you say that. I asked Dave last week at Blackbird, when we were recording, you had to, there was the erase, record, and playback head. I had to learn that. ERP, erase, record, playback. There was also, the I guess the cell sync head was the record head, wasn't the playback head. So we would work on that constantly, and then we would put it to repro when we mix. Well, there were some engineers that would stay on the record head. Because yeah, because when you switch to the repro, it sounds a little different. It too. sounds a little different, yeah. And you had a thing yeah. going. That's yep. true. I've forgotten yeah. about that. It's, yeah. We would do that. And, you know, it's funny, though, because it is a reminder, and I've had this happen in Pro Tools as well, where I did print some roughs in the middle of the record, and then later when I was going to mix, I came back and I listened to a rough, and I was like, holy shit, that sounds, yeah. you know, the low end sounds fantastic and stuff. And I realized that it was, I had struck a balance or I had not, you know, fucked something up later, which I now had fucked up. And it's a reminder, even in the Pro Tools world, we are making changes when we work on a song for a while. And it's smart to bounce roughs as you go and go back and check them. I mean, you know, hopefully you go back and check them and you're doing better now and, and you're, everything's good. But you can really, really be eye-opening. Sometimes you go, you go hear something and you... You had it way better a while ago, and you need to go back and undo it. And, you know, to add to that, Lidge, 
every time you do a rough mix, you should always save as. So if you're doing a rough, save as blah, 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 so that you always have that mix. And, and I do that all the time. You know, when I'm mixing now for clients, I'll call it mix one, mix two, mix three. And yeah. they might say, hey, you know what? I love the sound that you had on that previous mix. Well, I can just import session data. So you definitely have to keep, uh, you know, you have to keep your notes inside Pro Tools for sure. Yeah. And saving as for that, you will you can always get back. So let's geek out a little longer on that. I can't speak to every single platform and how they hold on to the revisions and right. logic does it one way. PreSonus does it another way. But I do know that in pro tools, you know, you have your main folder and you've got your session and then you've got your audio files and you have session file backups. It's right. a folder full of automated backups. Right. And when you do all those save as is, you know, after a while, you've got a whole ton of pro Tools sessions going on in your folder and it starts to get a little crazy. Right. And well, then you, maybe you know where I'm going here. Sometimes if somebody else goes to open up your session, they get confused easily. So what I started doing is I started taking all the old ones and I drag and drop them into the session file backups folder. I use a folder that I call old sessions. Nice. That'll okay? work too. I, I, you know, on the, your keyboard, if you hit shift eight, there's like a star or something like that. And I put that in front and behind it. So it's, you know, old sessions. So every time I make a new session to do an overdub on or something like that, uh, the next time I'd name a session, I'll drag that into the old sessions. So right. I don't put them in my session backup folders because I believe eventually th some of them get erased, don't they? No, they don't just erase anything. They only erase the one that it, the name that it's using to save right then and there. Oh, okay. So well, I could put them in there, but I like, I like to, your idea. At yeah. least, yeah, I have to go digging for mine in the session back. Yeah. I just leave them. old sessions. And for sure, that's helped me out in, incredibly. But that's so. the idea. So it's a reminder yeah. that way, when you go to open up Pro Tools while you're working, right. you see the one session there that is exactly the one you're supposed to be working exactly. on. There's no yes. confusion. So yes. good tip. We're jumping straight to tips already. <laughs> man. I love it. Can you start us off with this podcast interview, even though we've already leapt into it with an inspirational quote, something to get us psyched up about recording, making records? Inspirational quote? Yeah. Give us something good. One is don't fuck up. <laughs> For those out there that are listening to this that are either just starting or wanting to be an engineer and are maybe working in a session, maybe an intern, uh, the, the best quote that I have, which was ingrained to me when I first started out is, as a second engineer, you're to be seen and not heard. My mom used to say that about kids. <laughs> I was always like, what? <laughs> uh, getting back to the Lou Reed, I was going to extend that story a little bit. In 78, Lou was not the way he was when he died. He was pretty down. I mean, th those those years, seventy, the late 70s and early 80s were pretty funky. Era like a right low then. point, you mean? Well, there were a lot of extra. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Yeah. Who's the guitar player for Springsteen? Keep forgetting his name. He had a solo career. Niels Lofgren. Okay. This is 1978 now. Niels already had done a couple records and he came to visit Lou. And Niels is probably a, a few inches shorter than me. So when he left the studio, Lou Reed said, wow, Niels is really short. I think he was that short. And out of nowhere, I just said, yeah, I, I, I didn't think so. He, he said, I didn't think he was that short. I says, yeah, I didn't think so either, Lou. And he turned to me, he goes, what did you say? I says, no, I'm just agreeing with you. I didn't think he was that short. He goes, you're a fucking asshole. And Roy, who just hired me, was sitting there. He let me out. He, he didn't say anything. So right then and there, 
that was an incredibly valuable lesson. Yeah. I, I, I was like, you're right, Lou, I'm an asshole. And I, I got my place. So to all those that are just starting out, you know, you may be in a session and someone might say something that you know is wrong. Don't come right out and say it. You know, there, there's certain ways of going about that, but you know, you, you should just keep it to yourself. And this is the other thing too I learned as an assistant engineer is that don't show up your engineer. So that if he's doing something, like I had an engineer, the producer said, let's do these in this guitar. Let's do these guitars in stereo. So the engineer said, all right, Steve, open up two tracks. He says, we'll just record them on two tracks. And I went and whispered in his ear. I said, if we record them on two tracks, that's just mono. You know, we have to double it to be in stereo. So he goes, oh, you know what? Actually, Steve, let's, let's, we'll double these. Let's just go on one track. So I left it up to him. You know what I mean? So that's what I would stress to those that are just starting out. And if you are an engineer and you are doing projects, whatever, the other valuable lesson that I learned was, is that when you're in a session, it's not about you and your, what you're engineering and the gear you're using. It's not about the problems you're having, or you may not like the studio. You may hate the studio. It's about the artist. It's about the song you're recording. So every, if you're having, I just spoke to a good friend of mine this morning. He was at a studio. Oh, I don't like that. I says, yeah, but I make it work. As a matter of fact, the last time I worked there, the studio was down because the dim button wouldn't unlift. So I had to work the whole day. It was a don't button. It was, (laughs) I had to work in dim and I made it happen. It was, it was a struggle, but, and you know, that actually builds up and the producer will see that that helps you along the way. It probably gets you more work. I I talk about the power or the strength of the workaround for the engineer and that that's sort of our number one skill that applies to everything. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, you know, you're working with a producer and a band as an engineer, we're pretty much included to make the thing happen that everybody's trying to make happen that day. And right. if the dim butt doesn't work, they didn't come in saying, hey, we really, today we really need to have a dim button working. They just came right. in and said, today we really need to record four right. songs. Exactly, yes. And if you make it happen, right. then, then you've done your job yep. as an engineer, right? Yep. So it's interesting you talk about that story with Lou, and, and it reminds me of what I see commonly sort of with interns and even myself when I was first in a studio is that the control room, for example, there'll be a problem that's trying to be solved, a vocal part or a musical part. And everybody sort of turns to each other. And and occasionally there's sort of this open dialogue in the room and watch out. Yes. Because it's not an invitation for you as the intern to join in and share. Yes. Unless somebody directly asks you. Right. And then it's all right. But, you know, of course, having said that though, I have certain clients that I work with that I know I can say what I want to. But you have to, I mean, I've been doing this a long time, so I'm not trying to say I'm better than anyone, but you get to know which one to say that to. You know, there are certain producers that they want to have total control. They don't care what you have to say. But there are certain others that that do enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, so now how about sharing with us an important, you just did actually an important failure moment in the studio. Give us another one. Give us something where, you know, you've accomplished and achieved a great deal in your career, and it's nice to sort of humanize it and bring it back down to the rest of us that aspire to be Mm -hmm. in your shoes. Tell us about a time where it kind of really didn't work out or something that turned into a great learning experience for you in your career and recording. The thing that I learned from, I use the word mentor a lot because there have been many mentors in my career, uh, starting with Roy Sakella, who was the owner and chief engineer at Record Plant. Sadly, Roy passed away two years ago. First of all, he hired me off the street because I didn't, I didn't know anything. So he wanted to teach me his way. 
And I learned a lot of valuable lessons from him. One of which is, you know, when you're booking time with someone, you have to keep your promise that you'll work with them, even if you get booked by someone else who's a much bigger name. You don't go by the name, you go by the booking. And I was actually involved in a project with the Blues Brothers. I worked on the soundtrack of the Blues Brothers movie. Nice. I like that one. And it it went on for like about six, seven months. I don't think there was a budget because we spent a heck of a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot of other things. Along the way, I got to learn about a very valuable piece of equipment back then. It was called the BTX. I'm not sure you're familiar with that, but it was it was this white little console that had all these buttons. And what it did was it held two tape machines together. Is what, this the one for the Ampex MM1000? 1200. I, I think I've seen pictures of that. Okay. It's, it looks like you're in Houston. Yeah, exactly. You're like controlling the yeah. space station or yep. something, right? Yeah. And it, like when I first started in 78, I'm not sure how soon it the we were on 24 track then but it was 16 track just previous i'm not sure by how many years it might have been the year previous whatever so we were on 24 track and it was 1980 when they got to link up two machines together with uh, simty and i remember it would take about five six seconds for them to lock up and there was no mute on so like that you would hear that locking up so with the blues brothers we used that extensively so i got to learn that really really well so i was the guy in the studio that knew how to use it well in september of that year john and yoko were working on on double fantasy and they booked the studio and they wanted me because i knew how to use that so i thought for sure that the producer of the blues brothers having worked with me now for five six months would have said oh sure go he said, no, nah, I need you here with me. So, you know, at the time, John Belushi was very famous. The Blues Brothers movie was going to be huge. But I'm thinking to myself, man, I have a chance to work with John Lennon. So I didn't make any fuss. I had to keep the producer happy because I was working on more projects with him. Yeah. Well, as it turns out, you know, I missed that chance, but I got my chance later, you know, right, afterwards. Right. You know, you can't get too bent out of shape with, with names. Just got to keep to whoever it is you're working with. And, you know, I had that experience too. I remember being out of town on a record with a band when I got a call from a producer that I really would have loved to work with, you know, yeah. and it would have opened the doors to a series of records with him. And I just kind of had to swallow that and yeah. just think, well, yeah, that's too bad. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, it's, there's more value. I, in fact, I have to confess, I had a double booking just a couple of weeks ago. I was oh. so embarrassed. Oh, so embarrassed. That sucks. In fact, I even had the clients had showed up at the studio and I wasn't there because I was on another date somewhere. I just had a calendar accident, yeah. you know, yeah. just didn't go into my, didn't go how, from the email. How did you to resolve it? Uh, a lot of apologies, uh, and I offered to uh, to um, comp the time, session. Yeah, yeah. When I came back, we rebooked, did the mixes, and I so offered I to away. just comp it to him. You know, there's one other point too, Lidge, about that first year I started working there at Record Plant. I was in sessions, and then I, I forget what month it was. All of a sudden, I'm working on a record. The artist was Garland Jeffries. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him or any of your listeners would, but he was a singer songwriter, sort of like Lou Reed. Really cool stuff. He had somewhat of a of a reggae vibe to him in some of his stuff, but I highly recommend that you, he had a song called "New York Skyline," "Rough and Ready," and "I May Not Be Your Kind." 
And I remember the the assistant engineer, who's a very dear friend of mine, another mentor, taught me how to never use pen on track sheets. That was a good lesson. But they don't have track sheets anymore, so you don't have to worry about that. He was left alone. The engineer went to the bathroom. And I know what bathroom he went to. <laughs> and we were recording. And, and at that time, Garland Jeffries was singing live in the studio right next to the drummer. And we wouldn't get a take unless it was his vocal. Had a... Tube 47 and an SM57. Compressed one, EQ'd the other. That's the way nice. Roy, that was Roy's I, thing, yeah. I heard about that being done not too long ago. Somebody had a U67 and an SM7 yeah. together. Yeah. And actually, when David Thoner was on here, he was talking about doing a cool trick with some singers. I don't remember who it was, but it was somebody who really liked to be right up on the mic when they were right. singing. And that was, and it was too close for the sound that the producer wanted or the engineer wanted. Right. So they gave him two mics. Two one mics. that you could sing right up right on and put your lips yeah. on. And the other one was, which I probably further. need to do right now. Right. And the other one was like a little further back and it was yeah. a tube. So I guess you'd get phasing between the two mics, but maybe if you just picked one, yeah, I don't, I don't want. recall any phasing at all, but, and Roy would have well, known your, he was a- Yeah, know. in your case, you sort of visually seem to describe them as both- Yeah, they were both like right together. here, yeah. Yeah, next to each other. But so anyway, when the engineer left the room, uh, Garland was ready. He goes, all right, come on, let's go hit record. So Gray, the assistant, hit record. And sure enough, that was the, the master. So when the engineer walked in, he was upset that they recorded without him being there, which- you know, he's not in the business anymore. <laughs> well, that's what happens when you go to quote that bathroom. <laughs> right. you're talking about. No, but right. you, you can't see us on this, yeah. but let's just say he, he wasn't taking a leak. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And his nose was running when he got back. And the mirror wasn't on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> when he got back in the room, we were playing back the tape and he noticed the lead vocal was slamming the meters. And he gave this assistant, he yelled at him right in the session. Those were the days when they would yell at you in the middle of a session. And you had to stand there and take it, because if you didn't, you were not cut out. Man, I have to work myself up to yell at an intern in the session. <laughs> no, well, this particular engineer, I said, when I'm engineering, I'm not going to be that guy. And sure enough, I'm not. I, I'm very patient with my assistants. But in any case, uh, Gray felt horrible, and he was embarrassed. And we called the tech in. We said... Paul Prestipino, who was a very famous tech, he was on records and all that. But anyway, he came in and he said, the one thing that I always go to, he says, well, what does it sound like? And it sounded fine. So as I preach to all these up and coming engineers, I always preach that there's no rules in what we do. Of course, something, there is a thing of something not sounding right or something being bad, Go by your ears. Don't go by your eyes. You know, we listen to music. We don't read Even music. in digital clipping, I've heard records where that sounded great for the certain parts. Oh, okay. Parts, well, you know? there you Not go. always, right. obviously, but some yeah. some music, you know, we, yeah. we went through, we've been through the 90s and, and uh, 2000s, Nine Inch Nails, you know, mm -hmm. bands like that where, right. you know, sometimes... Uh, sorry, if, sorry if I'm actually describing this and it's not what you guys do on the records, but you know this where you want to extreme sounds, you know, right? And that yeah. could, that could be it. But you're absolutely right. Yeah. Listen, use your ears, judge yep. it based on that. Yep. And if you can't tell, borrow somebody else's ears. <laughs> <laughs> How about a success story for you? Something where you really had a holy shit moment, or it all seemed to come together really nicely and real proud. Well, that's interesting. Lidge, I'm going back. I mean, there's many, many sessions that I can fit in that category, starting with John Lennon. I mean, here it is 1980, and I had been there two, not even two years, and I'm working with him. So that was... You well, know, that's that, sort of a combination story. You want to tell that story right now? That I, I don't know how long you worked, but you talked about the eight-day 
You know, sure. Yeah. It, well, like Yucca. I said, I had, you know, I started in 78 and by the following year, I was already an assistant. I had to ask one of the maintenance men, like, what is a bus? You know, they were talking about buses and compression and what's like, a bus? Yeah, I rode one to get to the well, studio. Well, that's exactly right? how one of the techs explained it to me. He goes, well, right next door, we have Port Authority and it's a bus terminal. So you take the bus to get from here to wherever you're going. And when he said that, I was like, I get it. You know, I then knew what a send was. But um, so I got to move up fairly quickly because I lived there. I mean, I slept there. It was like I was hooked on that. And I think that's what everyone is feeling when they're in a session or they're recording. They, you know, I still bring up a session every day at home just to fiddle with it or do whatever. Anyway, so it was 80, it was 1980. And I had completed the Blues Brothers and Double Fantasy had already been out for months and it had a couple singles from it. And it was December that year, and they had recorded enough songs on Double Fantasy to make two records. Milk and Honey was the, the next one. And this particular song they brought in was not on Double Fantasy, and they wanted to release it as the next single for Yoko. It was a song called Walking on Thin Ice. And if you listen to it, it's, it's sort of like a dance record. I'm not sure if that's what they intended it to be, but it, it was kind of a dance song. So they booked me. I was available and, and you're the dance guy. <laughs> now I was the two machine guy. They didn't book the assistant that already had been with John, which I thought they were going to do because luckily he was on a project. So it's a, I was what the comes guy. Around, goes around. What comes around goes around. So I, you know, I mean, I, I'm not going to bore you or the listeners with every day I was there, but I remember the first day I didn't even want to look at him because I didn't know what he was like. And I didn't want it to think that I was, you know, back then, you know, you were faced with working with superstars. Yeah. So they had to feel comfortable with you. So in order to do that, you had to blend in. And I learned how to do that. And that really helped me You were afraid he was going to say that Yoko was tall or uh, something. And you'd be like, <laughs> no, I just like, what are you looking at or something like that? But I remember the first day there, I was just really concentrating on what I had to do and keep it together. And I did. And he had a guy from the BBC there. He was being interviewed. And the one thing that I remember him talking about was love me do. And when he said, yeah, love me do. And I was like, when he said that coming from his mouth, I was like, holy shit, that's a member of the Beatles sitting 10 feet from me. And it just blew me away. And then the guy was done. He says, all right, John, thank you very much. I'm going to get out. He goes, oh no, stay, hang out. He was that kind of guy, man. You know, by the second day, the ice was broken and he was one of the nicest guys I've ever, ever worked with. Very down to earth. You know, he walked around New York City without any bodyguards. He was such a cool guy. And to me, that was like almost the pinnacle of my career, almost like the high point of my career. Having never done a record in my life, having had work with him was incredible. And I remember the night before he passed, it was a Sunday night, a Sunday night, early Monday morning, which is the most desolate New York City is. And even back then, it was, the city was a much dirtier, funkier city than it right. is now. And we were on 44th and 8th, about a block away from Times Square. And it was about three in the morning. And I had already been there over 12, uh, I'm sorry, close to 20 hours. Yeah. Producer said, let's take a break. And I was I was fading. So I says, you know, I need to go for a walk. And I put on my jacket. I start to open the door to go. And he goes, hold on, I'll come with you. John did? Yeah. Wow. And it's just me and him walking down the hall, going into the elevator, walking outside, and no one was there. And I'm wow. and I'm like, does anybody see me walking with John Lennon on the city block here? And that was so intense for me. It's like I'm getting chills just telling it, you know. Did you and take he, a selfie? Yeah. <laughs> 
he told me a story of when the Beatles, before they were famous, they were famous in London. And he says they would go to these neighborhoods where the local thugs were mad at them because the girls were so infatuated with them. And he told the story of when some of them were chasing the Beatles and one of them, maybe John, threw his hat down and they just stomped on it, gave him enough time to run away. And I thought that was so cool, you know, but that was one of the highlights of my career for sure. So that was wow. that was pretty cool. And that was, uh, so you were working with those guys for, you said, an eight-day stretch. Yeah, we came in the first day and we listened to the track. And the track had, you know, all those cats that played on it. And now I'm going to blank, but Tony Levin and Hugh McCracken, I forget who the drummer was. Long story short, all we kept were the bass and drums. Okay. John added synthesizer and guitar. He played an incredible John Lennon solo on it, which, by the way, after he played the solo, during the playback, we would turn to each other and play air guitar. Every time that solo came up, we'd play air guitar That's each great. other. You got to play air guitar with John with Lennon. With John Lennon, yeah. That's pretty cool. But if dude. you listen, you should check that should song Should we just out. stop right there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 no. I'm, I'm kidding. No, but so, he, but, but if you listen to that song, Walking on Thin Ice, the solo is typical John Lennon solo. It's just really, really cool. And I can't tell you what guitar it was, what amp it was. I, I you know, I can't recall that much. It was much. the right one. It was the right one, yeah. But the other thing is that the day before he passed, he collected studio gear. I think he might have even had like a home studio in one of his apartments at Dakota's where he and Yoko lived. The new item out on the market was a thing called the clap track. And it was just a box where you hit it and it sounded like claps. That's great. And ironically, it was made or sold somewhere in New Jersey, nearby where I lived. And I says, you know, John, I'll, I'll pick that up for you. I live in Jersey. So he handed me two crisp $100 bills. And I'll never forget that night we heard that he was shot. I didn't believe it because I said, there's no way. Because I said he just left. But sure enough, it turned out to be true. The following day, I came into the studio and I handed those $200 bills to Roy, who then got it back to Yoko. Because um, you were going to go get yes, the box. Yes, and I was not about right? to keep it and go, John Lennon gave me these $200 right. bills. You know, that right. was not me. So right. I gave it back to her. The The weird thing about it is that he was killed on that Monday, the 8th, the following- And you were working with him on the Sunday, the day before- well, I was working on him from Monday to Monday, December 1st through the 8th, whatever. You know, we the first day we started on Monday, we stripped the, the, the track clean and we started doing overdubs, did vocals and mixed. So all that took seven days. The eighth day, we closed out the mix. They came in to listen and then they left. And the following week, the, the, the week from that Monday that he was shot, when they made Double Fantasy at a studio in New York, whose name I won't mention because they were our nemesis, uh, they kept a Nagra tape recorder rolling and recorded everything said in the control room. So the week after he was shot, Yoko wanted to use some of those and make a montage with music in the background of it. And I have no idea where that, I don't think it exists anywhere. I wish I had a copy. It's, it's, so it's incredible was, that she even had that right. kind of uh, uh, thought process and focus to, to, focus, to be in a right. creative place. Right. You know, so here it is. I'm. She came in, of course, she had two or three incredibly large bodyguards and she had the biggest sunglasses I've ever seen. And it was a very heavy moment for me. And, you know, we're listening to all these things John said and putting them together. And it was, it was pretty heavy, you know, but. Uh, wow, man. Wow. What an yeah. incredible story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Man. Yeah. I know that's, yeah. I'm, that's a tough story yeah. to tell. But, you know, um, but, but, you know, one other thing too, that I would like to say is soon here at, in Nashville, I started doing a lot of country records and I was working with Rodney Crowell, 
a lot. And I remember recording a track of his about his dad dying. And in the third verse, you know, he, you know, he says, and on his best dad, he told me, I forget the lyric, but it was about him speaking to him while he was dying. And he started breaking up and he couldn't sing anymore. And he started crying and believe it or not, everybody was playing along and we finished the track. As soon as it was done, I ran to the bathroom and just bawled my eyes out, you know, because, you know, when you, I would hope that engineers get very involved into the song or the track they're recording. I doubt stuff like that happens anymore because things are all piecemeal. Yeah. But I was so inspired and I was so into it. Uh, the one other thing too, Lidge, that I want to share with the listeners is that I would say my number one highlight besides working with John Lennon was I got to record a song with Gretchen Peters, who is lives here in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with Gretchen? Um, I think so. Is yeah. a country artist? Well, I wouldn't say she's a country artist, but she at yeah. one point did have a country record out. Okay. More of a, a pop writer. Right, right, right. She, okay. She is probably one of the most amazing artists I've ever worked with. Great singer, great songwriter. She writes, she doesn't write with anyone except for Brian Adams. That's the only one she co-writes with. She's had a ton of hits here in Nashville. But she had a song that she wrote called When You Are Old. And it's about getting old. When you're old and tired and gray and wear your coat on sunny days, you know. And my mom had been getting old and she was into music and she always said, oh, I want Bridge Over Trevor Waters played at my funeral. And I'm like, oh, I gave her this song and she says, that's the song I want played. So sure enough, in the funeral home, we played that song and it was not a dry eye in there. And and it was, that's one of my major accomplishments besides the Grammy. I mean, having that song played for my mom that I recorded was incredible. That's cool, man. That's great. Yeah. That is a moment. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for sharing those stories. Let's bring it back to some geeking out in the studio stuff for a sec, everybody. Okay. I got a few questions I wanted to throw at you. What what do the rock stars need to know about running a great recording session? Like to have a, and we're talking, I'm talking tracking. I'm talking with musicians, making sure it goes really well and everything is great. Well, obviously you have to pick the right mics to go with whatever instruments you're using. In order to get a good mix, you have to have good sounding tracks. And you'd be amazed at some of the stuff I have to mix. I'm not sure where the producer was when they recorded it, but I'm kind of spoiled down here because a lot of work that I do are with session musicians. So in order to get a good sound, you have to have a good sound on the floor. Whatever instrument you're recording, is it in tune? Are the heads changed on the drums that you're working on? Are they are they in tune? Does the drummer hit the drums with the right velocity to get a good sound? These are all elements that you're dealing with as an engineer that, you know, if it's not, if the drummer is half-assed and he hits that drum, you know, the dynamics are so out of whack and the, the place where he hits it is so out of whack, there's not much you can do with it. Maybe that's the sound you're going for, but... In order to, to get a good sound, it's got to sound good to where it's coming from. And then your mic choice and where you put the mics is a big deal too. And for me, I have go-to mics for certain instruments that I use mostly all the time. But I love trying new things. And I'm kind of old school, so I'm set in my ways. But I love trying what all these kids are trying. <laughs> yeah, me too, man. I love it when people come into yeah. to my studio and do stuff differently yeah. than I do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's a great opportunity to see it, right? The recording field is just filled with younger kids. When I say kids, I mean, I, you know, it could be 30, 30-year-olds 30 or whatever, but I have to keep up with the times. And I 
listen to what is going on. Unlike some of my colleagues who don't bend with the change, I realize that, okay, I, in order to stay current, I have to try these things. And and I, I love it. I think it's great. You know, Well, that's great because one of my questions for you was how do you manage the new technology? So how do you keep current like you described and how do you sort of handle all this new technology coming at you? Being around young kids <laughs> is very helpful. I just recently got an intern and uh, I had a, a talk with a friend of mine and I was telling him how it's hard for me to keep up with all the technology just in Pro Tools alone. When you're sending files to be tuned or edited, when you're getting files in, file management is, it could be very easy once you get used to it, but if you're not used to it, it, it could be detrimental to you. And even though the producer, you know, you can say, oh man, I messed up, whatever. They, they, they realize that and they don't want to have to deal with that. So I got a young kid who is so, you know, he knows about all this stuff I put it on him and sure enough, my problems went away. But having been around him now, I see what he's doing and I'm learning from him. Yeah, it's smart. So, I mean, you know, yeah. if you need a new skill set, the solution might yeah. be just find somebody who's good with that skill set. Yeah. And I also, I mean, gone are the days of working in studios where there's multiple rooms where you run into people. Those right. days are gone and it's a drag because you got to, you're working next to another engineer. Hey, yeah, uh, hey, you know, I'm using this mic. Check it out. Oh, cool. You know, there's an engineer in town, Joe Baldridge. Do you know Joe? Uh, Joe's great, man. Great, I love great his friend work. of mine. He teaches at Belmont. He's a great engineer. He was telling me a story of, um, he had the, the the 421 on the bottom of the snare drum, but that mic is kind of big. It's hop heavy. So during the course of the session, it fell down and it was pointing towards the kick drum. Towards the beater, probably. The beater. Right? Yeah. And he loved it. And sure enough, I tried it. Now, if you have that 421 up close to the snare, it's still going to hear all that snares. Mm -hmm. But it gets that shot at that kick drum, and it sounds cool. And if you compress the snot out of that, you can get almost like, you can almost make a loop out of that. Yeah. It's a really cool thing. The thing about the kick drum, this was another engineer friend of mine. His Beta 52 fell, uh, it drooped to pointing to the bottom of the kick where there's no sound at all, but it sounded great. So what what I got from that is mistakes sometimes are good. Yeah. So if don't worry about what it, like I said, don't worry about it, what it looks like. If you go out there and you notice the mic is not facing where you pointed it, but it still sounds good, leave it. You know, so. Glenn Johns talked about that in his book. He talked about that's how he discovered the Glenn Johns three oh, really? mic technique oh. is they had an extra mic that was on a guitar. They were recording drums in mono, but the U67 or something like that had been on a guitar amp over to the right of the drum kit. And somebody had taken it off the guitar amp and just turned it around and set it, accidentally pointing at the drums over the floor tom. And when they heard it in the control room, they all flipped. Wow. And that's I how they discovered it. I never knew how that was discovered. Wow. That's very cool. Yeah. So, and um, I've tried that technique and it's really, really, it, you, it's got to be for the right project. Yes. And, and there's a lot of variations in there. Yes. So I've done some exploration with it too. Billy Ward is a good friend of mine. He's a great drummer in New York. He put one right over the snare drum above overhead. Like, I, I guess that's kind of a Glenn Johns things too, right? And then the other one he put behind his right shoulder. So it faced the kit. Mm -hmm. And one song that we recorded for this record I worked on, I used just those two mics and the kick drum mic. 
And it probably sounded killer. And right? it sounded killer. Yeah. Another friend of mine would put a mic, 67s, he would put one in front of the kit in the middle of the toms and the other one on the floor tom. So I don't know how Glenn, I think Glenn would have it over. Yeah, I think it's like what you described. One's kind yeah. of over and looking mm-hmm. down at the drum kit, right. over near the hi-hat and snare side. And then the other one is looking up and over, not quite over your shoulder necessarily, but you know, from your right elbow, right. looking out over the, the floor tom toward, across the ride. And the other thing too is that both mics should be equal distance from the middle of the snare. If you want to pan them out and have the snare sound like it's in the center. Right. Or right. have the snare arrive at both mics at the same and time. panning, having said that, I would never pan them full left and right. I might put one at right before noon and the other one at three o'clock. Yeah. Panning is such a funny thing. You've ever noticed that sometimes you listen and something sounds balanced to you, but the pans are all screwy. Oh, yeah. Yes. And, and, you yes. Know, and you're like, this. You mm-hmm. know, you'd think your brain wants you to think that it should be hard left and hard right. Yes. But then you're like, but it seems to sound better to me if I do this. That seems well complete. You talked about Glenn. I read a, a, an article about Andy, Andy Johns, his brother, who recorded a lot of Zeppelin records too. And he said that when he pans his drums in a mix, he pans them towards the center because it's the only acoustic instrument on the record. And I thought to myself, acoustic instrument? Oh yeah, of course drums are an acoustic instrument. And I never pan my overheads full. I hate hearing a cymbal all the way on the left. I like panning my overheads about eleven and two. So you're not you're not doing Dave Weckl's records? I don't know. Oh, he's a he's a jazz cat oh. with like a thousand drums and everything's oh. panned out perfectly. Beautiful no, no, stuff. No, 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 no. but I'm teasing too. I mean, like <laughs> the beauty of recording too is that there are so many different styles yes, and there's so many different things. Absolutely. Anything. In fact, I I think it's safe to say that anything that we don't like on a record mean there's probably a kids. place where it's a perfect right. fit for a different style yeah. of music. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? You know what these kids are listening to now these yeah, days. I don't know what they're listening kids. to. They, they like everything, you know? All right. So um, <laughs> great tips on drums, man. Let's yeah. jump to vocals. Can you share some secrets for mixing great vocals? No. <laughs> well, don't you worry, know, I un- promise un- we won't steal them. I'll just make a YouTube video about it. Well, you know, once again, I'm going to fall back on my Nashville career, which was mostly country records. And in country music, the vocal has to be much louder than in a rock record. Having said that, though, nowadays, when I listen to even pop records, the vocals are always really loud. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Led Zeppelin records and Rolling Stones records, the vocal was part of the band. It was part of the record. Right, true. Uh, but, but yet the the vocals that are loud today, they're loud without necessarily making you go, oh, that's too loud or sounds wrong loud, maybe. Some country records. You right, so, to so, right. Let's say let's say this. When I take a vocal and I just turn the fader up too much, and yeah. it sounds too loud. Yeah, there's something about it where I'm like, it, I, it hurts my head. Yes, it's so yes, too loud. Yes. But is there a way that you can make it too loud but make it still kind of glue back into the track? What I use mostly in Pro Tools is Arvox. It kind of evens out the vocal, and a lot of times too, I'll molt the vocal into where there's different EQ or compression on it, and I'll use them in, in different spots in the chorus or the verse, whatever have you. And also the other thing too is most female vocalists, I find, have a, an EQ point somewhere around, I don't know, about 1,000 to 2,000 kilohertz that really hurts your ears during specific spots. Yeah, and, I'm done you know, with that. You know, a multiband compressor can take care of that, or you can just scoop out that one or 2K. But um, as far as tricks for vocals, I, I tell you, Lidge, as far as recording vocals, my favorite go-to vocal mic, which many artists don't like to use, 
is an SM7. Yep. It has everything you need. There's no real, real lows and there's no sparkling highs and the artist can get right up on it. And it's almost, it's almost like self-compressed before it's you get to the It's almost self, yes. And the other, the best thing about it, it's cheap. <laughs> I like things that are nice and cheap. That's right, rock stars. You can afford that one. <laughs> you can well, afford a $150 mic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the thing is, is when you're mixing something, especially the, the artists themselves, they always come back on more vocal, more vocal. And it kills me to have to bring vocals up that loud. Communication is a big key in what we do. We're in the communication business. I mean, songs communicate with with listeners. So when you're in a session, you have to communicate with your artist, with your producer. And if they say, I want this vocal to sound big, what does that mean? Does that mean low-endy? Most of the times, it means a lot of reverb. I, just the other day, I got a request to make the vocals sound warmer and like, the, like it sparkles at the same time. And I was like, which so direction low do end I go? High end. Yeah, exactly. So you have to be able to interpret that. And to me, when a vocalist says big, to me, that means reverb. I tend to use delay most all the time on anything. Instead of reverb, I use delay just to give it that width. And in some cases, most cases on a vocal, the, the, the delay has to be used differently in the verses and the choruses. Okay, so you might have different effects set up. Yes. And it's sending to one and, and then it's off and it's sending to the other. Well, and here's the other tip that I'm sure hopefully the listeners will listen to this, hear this and go, I'm going to definitely do that. And I do this not only on vocals, but on other instruments. Instead of sending it to a delay, what I do is I duplicate the vocal and I put the plug in right on the vocal. The best thing about that, and also I put a, I put a compressor before the delay because... There might, you know, depending on the dynamics of the vocal, I might not want to hit the delay as hard. So I compress it before going to the delay, but I put it right on the, the, the waveform itself because I can manipulate that waveform. So instead of like, there might be a couple spots where instead of having the send go up and down, I'll just clip gain the vocal up or down. Very cool. Good tip, man. And I might make several duplicates because in the chorus, it might be different. And maybe at the end of the bridge, it might want to go into a feedback mode. So, so so you might have, you'd have the delay plug-in on that track, but it might be in maximum mix, all it'll, effect. It'll be all in effect right, because okay. I'm blending it with the net, with the vocal itself. But this way, when you come up to a word and there's a certain lyric that's exactly, hitting the delay, yes. just so you just see it right there. Yes. You can just boost it up you or can, turn it or down. Or you can erase it. So I, I think you have better control over affecting something like that. And with guitars, I do the same thing, especially a solo guitar. I'll make a duplicate of the solo and I'll just treat it that way. And with Pro Tools 12, or I guess it was an 11, you have commit and freeze. So, yep. you know, I, I commit like a son of a bitch these days. And, you <laughs> Boy, know, is that, a, is that contrast to your youthful years? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, no, that's one of my main secrets in vocals with uh, mixing. So. Okay, killer. Well, we're about to take a break and then we'll come in for the jam session at the end here. But let me ask you another uh, one or two quick questions. How about stereo bus? Can you give us a great mixing trick for the stereo bus? That's funny. When now, now that you know what a bus is. <laughs> I don't know if Dave mentioned this to you, but we were talking about this the other day. When I first started, there was no, you know, we'd never put anything on the stereo bus. He recorded a mixed John Cougar record, uh-huh. And he was talking about how there was no stereo bus compressor on that record. These days, what I do the stereo bus is I start with my slate mix rack, which has the meter on it so that I can see. And then I use the console 
It's funny. The virtual, the virtual console. console right. Yeah. And depending on the song, you know, some, I, I normally go to API or Neve. I'm doing a record now I'm mixing where I'm using SSL. Let's, let's break it down for a sec. Cause I, I'm also new to the virtual console in the mix rack. You have a plugin that you can put on that is like the virtual console for that channel. Right. And then you virtual uh, mix and, console. And then you put the virtual console plugin on the stereo bus as well, right? Right. So right, so that your one the individual ones are hitting the stereo one. Is that how it works? Or well, do you just put them on the individual? You can do that. You can what you can do is you can strap like for instance the drums. You can strap the virtual console on all the drums and you can just uh, affect it with one plugin so they all see the same thing. The virtual console can affect all a group, like there's you can put in group A, group B, and you can just affect them all the same way. I don't use those on individual faders these days. I just use them, like what I'll do is I'll bus all of my drums to a master subgroup, and mm -hmm. I have uh, all the guitars, the bass, all the keyboards, the lead vocal, and all the backgrounds to separate stereo buses. And on those buses, I put my virtual bus console thing on there. Okay, great. And then I also use a compressor, sometimes the SSL compressor, but lately I've been using the Slate virtual bus compressor. Oh, I love it, it. It has the Focusrite and the Fairchild and the SSL compressor. Yeah, yeah. I, Let me ask you this. Uh, they have a, a virtual bus compressor rack that has all right. three in it. Yes, Do yes. you find yourself now by default like, well, what sounds good with a little bit of this and a little bit of that, where you never would have done that before? Have you looked over my shoulder when I'm mixing? <laughs> no, I, I've been using the red compressor, believe it or not. Uh, the focus right. Use the drive knob at all? I use it? the drive knob, yes. Oh, man, I, I cheated out. one time with a preset which I won't get into right now, but I listen to it and I go, oh, that's a good idea. So I started using that. And I do, in fact, use the Fairchild clone after that, just tapping it a little bit. Makes it a little brighter too. It does, yes. I teach this in mixing. You gotta When you put a plug-in on in Pro Tools, at first you should always make sure you should bypass in and out to make sure that you're not just hearing it louder. Because when you, whenever you hear something louder, you instantly think it sounds better. So you should always set your unity gain on a plug-in. And having said that, with virtual bus compressor, it gets louder because it's compressing and limiting and what have you. The last thing I put in the chain is, is a tape machine. Going back to my youth when you're mixing to a tape machine. Right. And UA, the UA, I was using the ATR for a while. Then I got a really good setting on the uh, Studer. And that's been my chain. And then whenever I make copies for clients, I always goose up the level with some kind of mastering plug-in. This stems from years ago with labels here in town. They would listen to a mix. They go, that, it doesn't sound as loud as the other stuff I listen to here at home. You know, it's like, well, because it's not mastered. So you can't explain anymore. You just got to let just them Just use your it. imagination. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Uh, well, right on, man. Well, great tips, dude. Great. Thank you for sharing all that yeah. stuff. Let's take a break and okay. we'll come back in for the jam session. And rock stars, before we do, I'll just remind you, as I always like to do, that you can find show notes and links to everything that we're talking about here with Steve at rsrockstars.com and just use the search and search for Steve Mark Antonio, which is M-A-R-C-A-N-T-O-N-I-O. Or if you're on the iPhone app and listening to the podcast app right now, if you just look at it and it's zoomed up on your screen, you'll see the logo for Recording Studio Rockstars. Just touch that right there. It should turn into the show notes and you can click any one of those links to go straight to your browser and check out the, the stuff we're talking about. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you guys in just a sec for the jam session. 
Hey everybody, it's Lid Shaw, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. I really appreciate you, and I really appreciate your time. And as a way of saying thank you, I've created a special mix tutorial just for you, Rockstars, totally free, called the Mix Master Bundle. With it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the tracks, and you get downloadable multi tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum kit, bass, and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter, and it's off my instrumental record, Skadoosh, and it's all available for you totally free right now. All you need to do to get it is text Mix Master Bundle to 33444, and I'll send it directly to your email. Again, that's Mix Master Bundle with no space to 33444, or you can go directly to MixMasterBundle.com, enter your email, and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much, Rockstars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. Hey, Rockstars, we're back. Um, we're just about to jump into the jam session. You're listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and my guest today is Steve Marcantonio. Steve, welcome back, man. Are you ready to jam? Forget about it. Come on, bring Forget it on. Forget about it. All right, awesome. Well, I got my questions. I know you had some stories you were yeah. thinking of. Uh, feel free to drop them in anywhere you want. All right, so now I know we've gone through some of this, but how about a, a recording tip hack or secret sauce? that our recording, our, our listeners, our rock stars could use right now. Secret sauce? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, secret sauce. There's not a session that I do that I don't record acoustic guitars. And your listeners might be rock and rollers that have never recorded. We love acoustic guitars. <laughs> I got to work with Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick, and he's he's a trip. He, we got along really well, and, and he actually played guitar. He was playing the guitar sitting right next to me while I'm engineering, and he is a huge... He's got like, I think, $10 million worth of guitars. And I said to him, I says, you got any acoustics? And he looks, he looks over at me, he goes, acoustic? I'm a rock guitar player. Why should I play acoustic? Just last week, I was in the studio. I was working with Dan Huff, who is a great producer and incredible guitar player. And we were doing acoustics on this one song. And he says, I want a, a really extreme radical sound on this. And we went to the distressor into the, the detector mode. Or no, not yeah, the there's detector. some sidechain modes, but there's side also chain. nuke. nuke well, there, mode no, that's and... that's the ratio. But there's the knob that where you can go uh, distortion two, distortion three. Right, right. You go to three and you crank it up, and you can get some really cool harmonic distortion. And it was on an acoustic, and I never thought of doing that for an acoustic, but for this part, it worked really well. And now that's that's a tip that I just learned last week after doing this 35 years. But the other thing, though, important to that, Lidge, is that we also had another microphone that was clean. Because, you know, I know it's nice to commit to doing something, but it's always nice to have a fallback. So eventually, if, you know, they might even want to use that distorted one in certain parts here and there and the cleaner one. So that that's that's a good tip is I would never think about distorting 
an acoustic or distorting a drum. But, you know, like a snare drum, especially like the tip I gave before about the underneath snare drum, try it once in a while. You never know. And when you bring up a fader, you might hear it. It might be compressing too much. But you never know when that works. The story of uh, Stephen Stills, where he's playing acoustic, and the engineer set uh, the engineer is here. I forget his name, but he set the compressor for when he was playing the soft licks, and then he started playing harder. And the engineer was like, "Whoa, whoa!" And Stephen Stills comes comes in. He goes, "I love that sound." So you never know, mistakes sometimes come in really, really handy. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. Well, so now you're talking about using the, the number three distortion on yes. the distressor. And if I recall, that setting is a little bit similar to like the harmonics of tape saturation right. or something yes. like that. Yes, it is. Yes. So you might be able to use a tape plug-in and tape just plug-in. slam it. Yes. Just yes. kill it, you know, yes. and see what happens. You know, I mean, if you don't have the UA, I know the, the, the Waves, Eddie Kramer tape machine is cool. And I, and I don't have it yet, but I'm going to get the Stephen Slate tape machine. That's supposed the to be Slate really one. Cool. I use that all the time. I haven't used the wave one. Yet, yeah. Though, so uh, it's good yeah. to know that that's one to check out. Well, all right. So now how about a favorite hardware tool in the studio? Something that when you're doing recording sessions and it doesn't have to be obvious, like the SM7 or the 1176, well, but maybe there's something that you've always got with you and you're like, sure. Glad I got this. Well, unfortunately I don't have any gear, but I work in studios that have great gear. Drums are my favorite thing to record, and I think that's a lot of people hire me because they love my drum sounds. And when I'm recording a room sound, the Yuri 1178 is my go-to. I hit the bottom button and the top button. That's I think that's all buttons pressed in when you hit the bottom and the top. Okay. And I just slam it, and I, I get it to where it is just slamming and just blend it in a little bit. But that's – I love having – heavy duty compression on my, on my drums. And another thing I do too, is I'll take a mic, uh, the, the, um, buyer 160 or any other kind of ribbon mic, or maybe even a 57. And I'll put it like right above the kick drum facing the toms and the snare and just compress the snot out of that too. And it's, I call it the kit mic and it really adds a nice effect to the overall drum sound. So those are my go-to things when in recording. Awesome, so. man. Great tips. Love yeah. that. And the 1178 is essentially, it's kind of like silver 1176. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, exactly. Uh, yes. But wait, is there such thing as a silver? There is a silver. Well, yeah, yeah. there are. Yes, yeah. yes. But like stereo. You know, yeah, all in yeah, one, yeah. So you've yep. got a stereo. And there's production. a mono and stereo switch, so you can you know split them off. I'm, but but I, I, I mess with the attack. Because in some cases, I'll just put the attack really slow and the release fast. But in some cases, I'll put that attack a little bit uh, quicker, depending on the song. Yeah, yeah. very cool. Yeah. All right, awesome tips. Now, how about a favorite software tool in the studio? Something that uh, people should know about or that you really like having on sessions? As far as plugins go, the UA plugins, I mean, I can do records just using them. They've they've got all their plugins sound pretty close to what they're emulating. That's great. Slate plugins and sound toys. Those are my three favorite uh, brands. And I would say amongst all of them, Echo Boy is one I use all the time. I use that in, in delays, uh, short delays, long delays. And I always go through all the different modes, whether it's tape or transmitter or AM radio. Uh, that's one of my favorite plugins. But as far as software, those those three brands I, uh, I I go to. How about a resource for the business side of doing this for a living? Any tips, any software stuff we need to know or any people or techniques that we should know about? 
my wife keeps reminding me I'm a businessman and I'm sure your listeners will hear this and go, well, I'm not a businessman. I'm an engineer, but you're running your own business. And I, I guarantee you in the course of my career, I'm probably shy $10,000 of bills that I didn't send. It's, it's, it, it's difficult to just go in there and just send a bill right away. So I got a guy. You know, that's what you got to do. You got to get a guy. Every now and then, you got to call a guy. There's a guy for everything nowadays. Right. You know, you do it yourself. If the bathroom goes on after me, I call a guy. Right. I got a local guy here who is a production assistant who does all my billing. He knows every studio, every uh, record company person. He has um, software that I just write in. The, the uh, When I'm done with the session, I write it in, and that's the best thing. As you well know, sometimes you have to wait. I've waited sometimes up to three months for a check. And it's interesting when you're dealing with these people, you want to ask them, hey, how about if you had to wait three months for your check? But you can't, you know, you can't make too much of a big deal with these labels because they might get tired of you and say, hey, Steve is a pain in the ass. I don't want to work with him because of blah, blah, blah. Right. So you just got to stay on top of it. And unfortunately, records, record companies, they change a lot. And maybe the person that you were billing has moved on. So if you can find someone local that that's all they do, and I pay a very small percentage for, for Mike Griffith to do my billing. Plug All right. Well, maybe we can include a, a link in there if people yeah. want to. Oh, yeah. If, absolutely. If Mike needs more yes, people to represent. Absolutely. But, you know, I think you make a good point, too. So when you're dealing with record labels, yes. um, you maybe are. Uh, you can accept waiting three months because you've built up a, a level of trust. Exactly. You know they're going to be there. Yes. They're good for it kind of yes. thing. You know, you, maybe you wouldn't necessarily typically wait three months to be paid by somebody who you worked with one time no. for the first time. If someone books me for, you know, if they're doing a custom, I call these custom projects. They're not a label. Uh, people will come up to me and say, hey, Steve, I need a break, man. I'm paying for this out of my own pocket. And I feel like saying to them, oh, you mean just like the bills that I pay? They're out of my own pocket. <laughs> I think the answer is always like, so you're, I'm sorry, you're asking me to pay for it out of my pocket? You're right, right, right. But in some cases, if someone comes up to me and wants to do a record and it's very low budget, I either get a cashier's check or I ask them, you know, if they say, I can give you such and such a figure, I'll go, well, how about if you just give me X amount and it's a little bit of lower in cash? Right. You know, it's nice to get that cash because <laughs> it's Uncle Sam doesn't everywhere. have to always know about that cash. And another hint too, if you're married and if you get cash, put that in your pocket. Don't let her know about it <laughs> or him. All right. All right. Okay. So now how about imagine yourself starting over in this whole thing? I know you're probably like, why would I do that? But you're starting over and you're in a new town. You need some sort of simple setup to start recording start your career off. Like you need to find people. You need to find people to work with musicians, people to record, and you got to make ends meet. And uh, you know, maybe I guess you, I guess your advice is go get a job at General Motors paying 12 bucks an hour. Or Waffle House. <laughs> so what would you do? What would you, what would you r r suggest to, for a rig? How would you find people? And uh, what are some good, good ideas for uh, making ends meet so you can keep in the recording? Well, the first thing I would say is go to wherever the music scene is. Go to clubs, get to know musicians in the area. Otherwise, you might have to, uh, I mean, a good friend of mine just left for Colorado recently, and he's going to do all his work over online. So hopefully, if you move to a new town and you already had clients from where you're moving from, you could still do it through the internet. 
Otherwise, you just have to scratch and claw your way and, and find out where the music is and go from there. So I, I have almost the identical setup you have. But of course, nowadays, you can just get a laptop and, and, and some kind of UA hardware and do it that way. That's what I would recommend, just a simple laptop. And, you know, I, I think you'd probably spend under five grand and, and get yourself set up, no? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, with Universal Audio. Yeah. And if you want a place to record, then you just got to find somebody to go in with you on, I would say. Well, the cool you thing know. about Portable, too, as far as place to record goes, you is wherever go. you, you yes. park your laptop and start putting up mics. That's right. Yes. So all yes. of a sudden you yep. got... Um, that actually is a very liberating thing about having a portable setup, because while it's wonderful to have your own studio, I mean, there's a lot of sounds you can explore with just mm -hmm. one mic in a room, right. you're also kind of limited. Like there's some things you just can't change, you know, right. the, the sound of the reverb in the room, the echo, right. you know, other than retreating the space. And so when you take mics into houses and people's living rooms and, you know, somebody, I had a buddy who rented an old house up in St. Louis and we used to do records there. And man, I'm telling you, the drum sounded fucking nice. incredible oh, in that, cool. you know, that big oaken stairwell right. going up in the front room space and stuff like that. So you can really find sure cool sounds being poured. Yeah, like that. yeah. The end of the question was just kind of like, what suggestions for making ends meet to do it? I think you kind of told the story when you talked about your beginning, which was, you know, I'm not going back to the factory to work yeah. full time because yeah. that won't allow me to be in the studio. Right. I'm just going to go, you know, take the pay cut, work in the studio. Yeah. Another version is find a job that's got flexibility. So yes, that, yes. I always felt like if when's, when the phone rings and there was a session, I had to be able to say yeah. yes. Yeah, yes, yes, that's true. You know, the other thing too, uh, Lidge, one other thing I left out about this business is that one of the most important things to do in this business is to network. You have to get around and, and get your name out there, meet people, talk to people, you never know. Like I work, most everybody I work with now, like I'm, I'm in sessions nowadays where I'm older than the parents of the artists. <laughs> so, you know, I work with a lot of young people, but I treat them with as much respect as working with anybody older than me, because you never know where they're going to be in a week or a year or a month from now. So they could be running a, a small label. So be really nice to people and network. Do as much network as you can. Even if you got a side job while you're still engineering at home, maybe on that job, you never know. If you're working at a store selling something, you run into someone, oh, you're, oh I see you're a musician. Oh, really? I do this, that. All of a sudden, you made a contact while you're working with someone. So yeah, true that's, that's my um, uh, advice. All right. Um, yeah. I, I remember that you said you had worked with Taylor Swift. You know, how old is she now? She's younger than 23, you. 23, maybe? 23. No. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Like well, she, so, and by the way, she was amazing. Very, very nice young girl. And yeah. that was a blast. Yeah, everything I've seen about her. I'm yeah. impressed with all her yeah. records. Yeah. Well, cool, man. So here's the last doozy of a question. Okay. What is the single most important thing our listeners can do to become a rock star of the recording studio themselves? I would say to go with your, your gut, go with your soul, listen before you speak, and use your ears, not your eyes. Especially nowadays, there's too many people coming into the control room going, let me see it. Yeah. How about let me hear it? You know, we're caught up on things being, you know, frames off. Come on. You know, so that's what I, I say. Yeah, we need to be able to turn off the screen yes, more easily. Yes, yes, absolutely. I like your first 
part of those three there of that hat trick, which was go with your soul. Yes. I feel like yes. of those three things, that's the one thing that is most likely to hold you back and prevent you. It's that regret of never having followed your dream or, or done what you yeah. felt like was Absolutely. uniquely you, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, having said that, what we do in the studio, we want it to be so, so great and spectacular sounding, but sometimes the music that we're working in doesn't meet up to the level of how hard we're working. And I know that's a vague statement. I don't mean to put down anybody's music, but in general, I feel that a lot of soul is missing in music, especially the singing part of it. I see so many young kids out there singing and they just sing very loud and the highest key they can sing in. I sat down with my daughter once and played her You're So Vain by Carly Simon. And you can picture that song in your head. I couldn't get to the chorus. She's like, turn that off, dad. It's boring. So I think a lot of soul is missing in this business. And music is should be soulful. And I don't mean soul music. It could be rap music. It could be classical music. It could be rock music. There should be a soul content to that. It comes from the soul. It doesn't, you know, don't don't get caught up in making things so perfect in Pro Tools. Is it, does it feel, yeah, does it risk, feel good? Right? It yeah. needs to have risk in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's safe. Yeah. You know, you know, what, what, are, you, what are you losing? Right. Well, all right, ma'am. Thank you so much, you Steve. You got it, man. Can you let our listeners know how they can uh, follow you, find you on the Well, on they the can find me. On, I have a Facebook page, and I will soon have, after this day, I will soon have a website for sure, and I'll put it out there on Facebook. And if anybody is trying to contact me on Facebook uh, through your- Through the blog post, Through yeah. the blog, they should mention something so that I know that it's through this, because I get a lot of requests to be friends. You'll and, send you know, them like a Werther's- candy in the mail or something like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> cool, man. Well, thanks, Steve. You got really it, pleasure. Uh, Rockstar is a reminder. You'll find all the links to this in the show notes at rsrockstars.com and just search Steve Mark Antonio. Again, the spelling is M-A-R-C-A-N-T-O-N-I-O. And we'll see you guys around the studio. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.